This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Veterans Affairs Department has been concentrating on improving service to its veteran constituents, and it's had some success. Surveys show a 24% jump in trust in VA over the past few years. One career manager who gets a lot of credit is the VA's Deputy Chief Veterans Experience Officer. For her work, Barbara Morton is now a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. She joined Federal News Network's Tom Temin earlier to talk about her accomplishments. I know how hard VA has been working on this since the issue of appointments and scheduling and all of this, but in general... It's much more than scheduling and appointments that create the veteran experience. And so kudos on finally getting some recognition nationally this way for the work you've done. Tell us some of the major steps you think VA has taken in recent years to just keep on chipping away at that idea of customer experience. It really boils down to the passion and shared purpose and commitment of our VA brothers and sisters all across the nation. We had, as you sort of alluded to, a very big challenge back in 2014 with the Phoenix VA Medical Center wait time crisis, crisis for veterans first and foremost, and certainly a wake-up call, I think, for us at the department to really understand that we needed to sort of have a mechanism to channel the voice of the customer to the highest levels of leadership so we could really track and understand what their experiences were, not just sort of what the operational dashboards were telling us, but really what veterans were experiencing boots on the ground. And so this has been a program build by thousands of efforts by many, many employees, uh, again, across our facilities. And it's been wonderful to see the impact and have veterans feel that impact over the years. And it strikes me that really the veterans, you're the deputy chief experience officer, there's an appointed experience officer, that channel, that silo of work, the experience officers, the best you can do is measure what is going on and maybe point to some possible solutions where there are customer experience issues. But it really takes thousands of VA staff members individually to be able to raise those scores, correct? Indeed. And this is why, I mean, it's such an honor to be considered as a finalist in this wonderful network of public servants. And I think for me, what's so wonderful is, you know, I'm representing these thousands of employees. I'm just one person who has this shared passion and shared purpose to focus our energies and empower employees, actually, to give them tools to know how to deliver these fantastic experiences that I know they all want to for veterans and their families. So it's certainly an effort shared across by many, many people who have the same mindset. And we as individuals and as a collective have been able to move the needle for veterans. And that's just just incredibly inspiring to me. And since, say, 2016, the baseline of where this uptick in trust has occurred, what did you identify as the areas most crucial to improving veterans' perceptions of VA? Yeah. So, you know, interesting. So we started on this journey back, as you mentioned, 2016. In 2017, you know, we knew we had landed on sort of a definition of what good experience should be, right? It should be easy. It should be effective. Veterans should feel like valued customers, like they belong with VA, right? And, And that's all sort of leading us to build trust. But we knew we needed to start somewhere to sort of ground those concepts into tangibles and practices and trainings and artifacts again, to empower employees to deliver these great experiences at scale. And so we partnered early on with our siblings in the Veterans Health Administration. They, of course, many of them see veterans on a daily basis, treat care for veterans and their families. And so they were incredibly willing partners, early adopters of this vision and mission back in 2017. So we really began there and helped build some tools for the Veterans Health Administration in concert with them. We co-designed programs with them, and then we're able to sort of roll that out at scale. 
I noticed just a small development recently. VA healthcare centers are getting rid of the kiosks for checking in. Mm-hmm. And now veterans soon, they will be able to point their phones at a QR code to be able to check in. And often, yep. isn't it simply walking yep. in the door and checking in can be a huge turnoff, not for just VA, but for any medical facility, any any hotel and airline for that matter. Yeah, exactly. And I think the power of experience is how adaptive it is and it requires us to be, right? If you think about your real life outside of government, there are certain things that are common that are given nowadays. And we want to respond to those types of needs for veterans and frankly, just general members of the public who happen to engage with VA as well. So on the digital side of the house, we've also spent the last few years really transforming our website, va.gov. So it's much more veteran intuitive and user-friendly Again, using human-centered design, a practice to co-design with your customer. Hey, tell us what you think about this new widget or that new widget, right? Really making sure we get that feedback to design in real time. And we're sort of graduating now to the very kind of exciting next project, which is the VA mobile app. Flagship app, first of its kind getting some wonderful reviews in the app store from veterans utilizing it. And really it's designed again with the veteran in mind with veterans and and making sure it's very easy, very intuitive for them to utilize to get connected with the services they need at VA. Sounds like the best thing since Blue Button. We're speaking with exactly. Bar- <laughs> We're speaking exactly. with Barbara. Even better. Right. Even better. All right. Well, I'm going to check it out myself. We're speaking yeah. with Barbara Morton. She's Deputy Chief Veterans Experience Officer at Veterans Affairs and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. I'm going to try it even though I'm not a veteran, but I like to check out these things as we hear about them in the government. And what is the, I don't know, secret sauce or what mm. technique do you use when a possible solution is found to a customer? Customer experience issue, you've got to get that workforce here, there, yes. this function, a call center, a receptionist, maybe even a medical staff person to change. And I yeah. imagine in a place as big as VA with unionized workforce to a large extent, that can be a challenge. There can be many challenges, but I think one of the wonderful things about the practice of customer experience as a business and government and human-centered design is it really helps us orient towards those that we serve. So it brings us very much back to basics and our core mission. So I think at VA, it's not a far stretch for our employees to really see that connection to our core values. We're really here to serve the cause greater than themselves and to be able to create tools that are going to be easy to deploy across different medical centers, regional offices, cemetery administration facilities. You know, employees are eager for that. And what we do with them is we kind of co-design with them. And so we bring them into that conversation. It's not something imposed on anybody. It's bringing their subject matter expertise as well, getting them energized around the art of possible. And then they're they're the stewards that are able to execute and, and take it forward. And how fine-grained does the analysis get? Say, okay, now X percent, which is 24% more than Y percent, trust VA on that survey. Are you able to determine, say, well, the Sacramento Center is fantastic in this or that measure. You know, Dallas, you got to improve this and that. And New Jersey, you got to do this and that. Are you able to get to that drill-down level so that individual locations can work on their CX? Yes, absolutely. And that's kind of one of the the keys to your point, the secret sauce of of being able to kind of have this macro score VAY, the general sentiment of what veterans are telling us about trust, but then also the opportunity to your point of drilling into specific facilities, regions, areas. So those particular leaders 
are empowered to use that data specific to their facility to make those improvements. And one of the things that our office has done, and this is sort of a demand signal that's been built over the years, is literally going into facilities at their request and helping them understand the data. It's not necessarily intuitive and and also understanding how to sort of put to action different practices, again, trainings, tools, communication artifacts, other products to address those particular areas in need of additional attention. And it must be, I guess, nice, luxurious to have a situation where changes in policy that might be proposed or changes in procedure, nobody objects to them on political or philosophical grounds. Nobody would argue with being better for the veterans. You're absolutely right. I love that comment. So one of the things I think I'm most inspired by and proud of with this movement, and it really is a movement um, in VA and across federal government, here from a VA perspective, we've been had the opportunity to bridge over multiple changes of administration and multiple secretaries with you know many different viewpoints, priorities, et cetera. But what's remained constant is customer experience as a top priority. And that is just really, really incredible because what it does is it anchors us in something common that bridges across different policy changes or different perspectives, something that we as employees and public servants can ground and root in for the long haul. Barbara Morton is Deputy Chief Veterans Experience Officer at Veterans Affairs and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pre- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is 
historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. 
Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, 
there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.